Welcome to the Kanoi Church Podcast. We're glad that you're interested in connecting through this teaching time. If you'd like to connect further, feel free to reach out to us through our website, kanoichurch.org. For now, enjoy this teaching from Kanoi Church, where our mission is to lead people into a growing relationship with Jesus Christ. Good morning. We are in week three of this series called The Faithful, talking about the life of Abram, who will later become Abraham. And so maybe you've heard of Abraham, but you've never heard of Abram. Well, that's the same guy in scriptures. And in scripture, there's something about this guy's faith that sets him apart. It's talked about a little bit differently than every other person's faith. And so we wanna talk about, wanna pay attention to it, but we also wanna recognize the fact is that Abram didn't have it all figured out. He didn't. And it's easy for us to look at a guy like Abram and hear about his faith in scripture and think he has it all figured out. We put him on a pedestal and we feel like there's just no way on earth we'd ever be able to live up to him. But he didn't have it figured out. In fact, I would like to say that I bet you Abram had it less figured out than we do. Because Abram didn't have scriptures to tell him the story of God. He didn't have Jesus to show him the perfect image of God. Abram didn't even know God's name. God doesn't reveal his name until the time of Moses. So Abraham had some major faith to step forward and to follow God that speaks to him and calls him to leave his home and go to this new place to become a nation. In today's chapter, we find out that Abram isn't even the only guy that follows God most high, Elion. So I'm excited to talk about this chapter. so let's, let's just jump, jump in. Go with me to Genesis chapter 14. If you have your Bibles, open them up. You got your Bible app, grab that. If you don't have a Bible with you this morning, there are Bibles in the chairs. And if you don't have a Bible, period, we want you to have a Bible from us to you, our gift to you. Um, we're gonna start, we're gonna just read through it, starting at verse one. And uh, just an FYI, there's a lot of names of people and places that are so hard to pronounce this morning, so we're just going to work our way through it and apologize to anybody out there who speaks Hebrew fluently. Starting at verse 1. At the time when Amraphel was king of Shinar, Arioch king of Elisar, and Keterleomer king of Elam, and Tidal king of Goyim, These kings went to war against Bera, king of Sodom, Bersha, king of Gomorrah, Shinab, king of Adma, Shembar, king of Zeboim, and the king of Bela, that is Zor. All these latter kings joined forces in the valley of Siddim, that is the Dead Sea Valley. For 12 years, they had been subject to Keterlomer, but in the 13th year, they rebelled. And we'll pause there. We did not get through all the names, unfortunately, just so you're aware. Um, This is the first recorded war in the Bible, interestingly enough, just to point it out. It's probably not the first war in the world, but it's the first war that comes into contact with, with Abram. And so it's recorded in the story of Abram. The name that we want to pick out from this list of all of these names that we want to pay some attention to this morning is Keter Laomer. Now, we're going to create an analogy this morning to talk about this. And, uh, and so let me set this up for you. I'm sure you guys have read books, seen movies, or heard about how the mafia can charge protection money to shop owners, right? 
Yeah, I see some nodding heads, okay. If you pay the protection money, then you don't have to worry about anybody messing with your shop, except for the mafia, of course, right? They'll protect you from any other gang or rival family that's trying to mess with you. you Gotta pay the protection money. If you don't pay the protection money, well, then that mafia is gonna come and destroy your shop, or worse, right? Okay, the mafia didn't invent this. This was something that came around a long time before this. And so Keterleomer is a king of a large country, and around him are a bunch of small countries. And so what he does is he knows these small countries charge taxes to its citizens. And so he charges those countries taxes as well for protection, protection money. And that is all well and good. Everybody does what they're supposed to as long as everybody pays what they're supposed to pay, except if we look here, in verse 4, it says, they did this for 12 years, and on the 13th year, they rebelled. All right? They can't take it anymore. So, Keterleomer grabs a bunch of other big countries who, who probably were also um, profiting from this setup of protection. And so, we have like five mafia bosses who are going to come and attack four shop owners, get their money, Right? That's our analogy. Five mafia bosses against four shop owners this morning. All right, let's pick it up in verse five. In the 14th year, Keterleomer and the kings allied with him went out and defeated the Raphites in Ash, Ashteroth, Karnam, the Zuzites in Ham, the Emites in Shaveth, Kirathaim, and the Horites in the hill country of Sar, as far as El Panir, the desert. Then they turned back and went to En-Mishpat, that is Kadesh, and they conquered the whole territory of the Amalekites as well as the Amorites who were living in Hazazon Tamar. Now, pause there again. Not a whole lot to say about these verses except is the mafia bosses are on their way to the four shop owners. And on their way there, they're coming down the street, they're gonna just destroy every shop on that street until they get to the four who stiffed them their money. Right, so they're ransacking and pillaging all these other places on the way to get to these four countries, these four kings who've decided to stop paying their protection money. And you would think that those four countries would hear about what's happening. Massive army coming through, it's pillaging everything, it's defeating everybody, anybody else's armies, there's nothing they could do. You would think that at this point, wisdom would say, all right, let's go out and make peace. Like, let's just, let's just pay the money so we can get this to stop because what's happening to all the other shops, we don't want to happen to our shop. But this isn't what they choose. Verse eight. Then the king of Sodom, the king of Gomorrah, the king of Adma, the king of Zeboim, and the king of Bela, that is Zor, marched out and drew up their battle lines in the valley of Siddim against Keterleomar, king of Elam, Tidal, king of Goyim, Am Amraphel, king of Shinar, and Ariot, king of Elisar, Four kings against five. Now the valley of Siddam was full of tar pits. And when the king of Sodom and Gomorrah fled, some of the men fell into them, and the rest fled to the hills. The four kings seized all the goods of Sodom and Gomorrah and all their food. Then they went away. They also carried off Abram's nephew Lot and his possessions since he was living in Sodom. Okay. So you call it bravery? You can call it uh, a lack of wisdom. Whatever it was, these shop owners decide to fight the mafia, and they get beaten. They're getting beaten really bad. 
And so these countries start to retreat, and they're retreating across a battlefield that's full of tar pits, and people are falling into the tar pits. They're perishing as they try to retreat. Some people can't get away. Some people do, but the five mob bosses go into all the shops, and they take everything. They take the possessions, the goods, the people, everything, capture them all. And they take all the people. This is the important piece for us this morning because this is what gets Abram involved in the story. They take all the people. People are a commodity in ancient world. You can take the people, they can become your slaves, or you could sell them to other people as slaves and make some money. And so this is the spoils of war. They take all these people and they head out. And unfortunately for them, they take Lot, who happens to be the nephew of Abram. So verse 13 says, a man who had escaped came and reported this to Abram the Hebrew. Now Abram was living near the great trees of Mamre, the Amorite, a brother of Eshkeland Anir, all of whom were allied with Abram. And we'll just pause here just enough to say a couple of interesting things. This is the first time Abraham is called, or Abram is called Hebrew. And so we don't see that word before this point. So this is the first time he's called Hebrew. We know that God's people are Hebrews, right, uh, in the Old Testament. And so uh, this is the first time that's mentioned. The other thing that's interesting for us to know is last week we talked about how Lot and Abram split up. And um, Abram, he's pretty well known wherever he landed. All right? He landed near these great trees, and he's made some friends. Abram is living a life that makes him worthy of having allies, And that's kind of a big deal in the ancient world. He has allies that are strong enough relationally that when he needs them and he calls on them, they show up. So verse 14, when Abram heard that his relative had been taken captive, he called out the 318 trained men born in his household and went in pursuit as far as Dan. During the night, Abram divided his men to attack them and he routed them, pursuing them as far as Hobah, north of Damascus. He discovered, or he recovered all the goods and brought back his relative Lot and his possessions together with the women and the other people. So pretty self-explanatory. Abram and his allies, very small force. Probably the reason, you might think it's really odd. Why are they noting how many people Abram had? And probably the reason that scripture is doing that is simply because they want to show it's a small force. Small group of people fighting five kings allied together from big countries. So a small force against a big force. And Abram wins. He, he does some strategy in the middle of the night. He divides his army. He routes them. He chases them down. He wins. God is on his side. He rescues not just Lot, but everyone that was taken captive. Verse 17 to the first part of 20. After Abram returned from defeating Keterleomer and the kings allied with him, the king of Sodom came out to meet him in the valley of Shaveh. That is the king's valley. Then Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was priest of God Most High, and he blessed Abram, saying, Blessed be Abram by God Most High, creator of heaven and earth, and praise be to God Most High, who delivered your enemies into your hand. And I know I'm stopping in the middle of a verse, but we're going to stop right there. Melchizedek. Who is this strange, mysterious guy who shows up in the middle of the story? We haven't heard about him in the whole story, and all of a sudden... Melchizedek shows up, and and we're like, who is this guy? He's a priest, he's a king, a priest of God most high. All right, Melchizedek's name means king of righteousness, and he is the king of a city called Salem. Salem is a shortened version or an old term for Jerusalem. Jerusalem is the city of peace. Melchizedek is not just a king, but he is a priest, and a priest of who? 
Elion, God most high. A term that literally means the highest God. And it's a term we find used for God, the God we worship here this morning, Yahweh, all throughout the Old Testament, okay? Now, we are left with the question, does, does Melchizedek actually worship Yahweh? Does he actually worship who we worship? Are Abraham and him talking about the same guy? And the thing is, we just, we don't know. There was no, like when they came together, there was no membership class. They didn't exchange PowerPoints on doctrinal statements. There's no way for us to, to possibly really know about that. But it seems like those things aren't as important as recognizing. Abram says, yeah, I worship the God most high. Melchizedek says, yeah, me too. Who? The creator of heaven and earth? Yeah, creator of heaven and earth. And that's enough to unite them together. Melchizedek is the king of righteousness in the city of peace, and he is the priest of the most high God. And he shows up bringing bread and wine. This should sound a little familiar to you. I, I just, I'm not going to say more than that, but for now, you know, we'll talk about Melchizedek a little bit later in the service. But Melchizedek blesses Abram on behalf of the God most high. 20b, so this is the second half of verse 20. Then Abram gave him a tenth of everything. Hmm, interesting. This is the first time that we see a tithe in Scripture. First record. There's a lot of firsts for Abram. You know, he's, he's kind of beginning out this journey with God. He's figuring it out as he goes. And so we have a lot of firsts with him. This is the first time we record a tithe, a giving of a tenth. And so you may be familiar with the term. You may not. Maybe this is your first time hearing it. But in church, we pass an offering plate for our tithes and offerings. And this is the first time we see a tithe represented. We'll talk more on that later too. Verse 21 the king of Sodom said to Abram, give me the people and then keep the goods for yourself. But Abram said to the king of Sodom, with raised hand, I have sworn an oath to the Lord God most high, creator of heaven and earth, that I will accept nothing belonging to you, not even a thread or the strap of a sandal, so that you will never be able to say, I made Abram rich. I will accept nothing but what my men have eaten and the share that belongs to the men who went with me. Anir, Eshkol, and Mamre. Let them have their share. And that takes us to the end of the chapter this morning. One of the things I want to note before we get into our grow area is that there is two kings that ride out to meet Abram, right? One is Melchizedek, and he offers bread, wine, and a blessing. And Abram takes it. The other king is the king of Sodom, and he also offers Abram something. He says, you know, give me the people and you keep all the stuff you recovered for yourself. And to this, Abram refuses. And I think we just need to pay attention to this just for a moment. Um, the Apostle Paul talks about something in the New Testament called patronage, being a patron. And a patron is, is someone who gives support, usually money, in support of something else or in support of someone. So our church, we have some missionaries, and when we give money to those missionaries, we are patrons of the missionaries. We are supporting their mission. And, and on the best day, the best kind of patron is someone who's gonna support you with no strings attached, right? But one of the things that the Apostle Paul warned us about is being careful about patrons who give money and expect something in return, expect a favor in return. So... Um, a person who gives you money or support expecting a favor down the road or expecting to be able to say, I help make you who you are is not the kind of patron that Abram wants. 
All right? It seems like Abram is back to making wise decisions, which is a good thing. Um, he doesn't ever want the king of Sodom to be able to say, I put you where you are. I made you who you are. I made you rich. You owe me a favor because I did this for you. And one of the things that I want to point out is when, when Abram and Lot split up, if you remember, Lot chose to go and pitch his tents near Sodom. Abram did not. And, and that choice that Lot made, this one's kind of in stark contrast, okay? Because the king of Sodom is offering something, and he's not only not going to put his tents there, he's not willing to take a thread or the strap of a sandal from the king of Sodom. He really distances himself from the king of Sodom. So we're going to talk more about Sodom and Gomorrah in the future of this story. Um, but it seems like Abram might be aware of something, right? The, the reputation of the king of Sodom, the reputation of the city has gone ahead. And there is something in stark contrast between the king of Sodom and Melchizedek. Because one of these people, Adam, um, Abram receives, and one of them he does not. Okay, we're going to get into our growth area this morning. So we're going to talk about two things. There's probably more things, but I'm going to stick with two because um, I already have a hard time closing my mouth in sermons anyway. So, um, grow area this morning, we're going to talk about mission, and we're going to talk about tithing, all right? Mission and tithing. Because, you know, maybe the growth area for you this morning is trying to figure out where in the world can I be on mission? How do I be on mission in this world? And maybe the growth area for you has to understand, has understanding of, of why do we give, like when we pass that plate, why do people put their hard-earned money in that plate? Why do we do that? Why are we generous? And so we want to talk about both those things. So we're going to start with this. Um, how does Abram know where to get involved? Abram gets involved in a war. How does he know where to get involved? Because, you know, Nick, there's a million things in this world that I could get involved with, a million good opportunities, a million places that I could spend my time and my energy and my money, a million good things. Well, one of the things we want to say is Abram wasn't looking for a war. He wasn't looking for a conflict. He wasn't looking for a problem. We wouldn't even know about this war if it hadn't been for the fact that it affected Abram's family. Family is why he got into this conflict. So the first thing I want to say is you have a family. You have a spouse you have parents, you have grandparents, grandkids, kids. We all have family members. None of us came into this world all by ourselves, right? You have family. In ancient times, family was the most important relationship there was. Most important, over every other relationship. Abram reacts without hesitation as soon as he finds out that his nephew's been kidnapped because it was his family. So the first thing I want to say when it comes to being on mission, when it comes to figure out what should I invest myself in? Well, what affects your family? What affects your family? Are there things that your family as a group can get involved in? Are there things in your family that are needs themselves that need to be paid attention to? Because you can pay attention to a lot of great things out there, but if you're not paying attention to what's happening right in your own family, you are missing a major thing. So first, family. What's going on in your family? Now, second, I'm gonna say this. With the arrival of Jesus, the concept of family shifts, all right? In the Old Testament, race was the major way that we saw family. God's people were a race. 
And in the New Testament, Jesus comes in and we find that it's less about race and it's more about grace. Jesus opens the door and expands family to all who know and come to him. In John chapter one, it says, to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. So when you come to faith, when you decide to believe in Jesus, when you let Jesus be the one who's directing your life, your family expands. The thing that unites us here together today is Jesus. We are a family, we are children of God, which means that we are brothers and sisters in Christ. So first, what affects your family? And second, what affects your spiritual family? What affects your spiritual family? What, are, what mission can you get involved in that affects your spiritual family? And I would start right here at church. That's the, that's the smallest piece of my spiritual family, right? Um, what affects church? There's a number of things here at church you can get involved in, you can be on mission with. There's a number of ministries that you could be a part of. But our church does more than that, right? We also prayerfully and financially support a number of missionaries. We support church planting. And we even support Echoes in Elizabethtown. So there's some things that your spiritual family, the leaders of this church, have deemed as worthy things to be involved with, to give to, to participate in. That's a place that you can give to that affect your spiritual family. But maybe you look beyond that. I tend to be very local. I have these local goggles. My wife, thank goodness for her, she has global goggles, so we're a good match in that way. She keeps me honest. Maybe you have global goggles, and so you just feel like you're so open. To, there's so many things out there that need your help all around the world, and the needs are so great. What could I possibly do? What, what dent could I make? And in fact, they're so great that sometimes we get frozen in an action because the needs are too great. Sometimes the needs are so great that we end up feeling depressed about it because what could we possibly ever do? So let me talk about, I'm gonna talk about homelessness this morning because last week and this week we started announcing that homelessness is a, is a, rising, um, a rising need in Elizabethtown even. So much so that our local winter shelter needs more volunteers for us to step into because the need is so great. So let's talk about homelessness because homelessness is not just something that happens here in our town, it's something that happens other places as well, right? It's a big issue. <clears throat> in New York City, there's about 170,000 homeless people, okay? People dealing with homelessness. If you consider the size of Elizabethtown, that is 14 and a half Elizabethtowns with every single person who lives in Elizabethtown dealing with homelessness. If you can picture that, okay? 14 of our little towns every single person dealing with homelessness. There's about 4,000 people in New York that need to sleep in a shelter every single night because they don't have a car to sleep in, because there's not a warm place, a stoop or a vent, there's no one that's gonna take them in, a family member. They need a shelter, there's no other options. So 4,000 people. The New York City Rescue Mission has 240 beds. 240 beds and there's 4,000 people. Now. You might be doing the math in your head and saying, that's a very small percentage, you'd be right. And you might think, why do you even bother? It's not even making a dent. And you might be right. Even if there's enough missions in New York City to meet 4,000 beds every single night, you might say, well, that's not fixing the problem of homelessness and poverty, is it? You'd be right. And we could say the same thing about our winter shelter here. Yeah, we have 30-some beds that are full every single night, but it's not fixing the bigger problem, is it? 
There's a professor whose name is D.C. Inns, and if I'm glad I've read this because if he hadn't pointed this out, this is the sort of thing that makes me feel, why bother? I'm not saying why bother might be how you feel because I'm like, I wonder how people feel. That's how I feel. When I hear those sort of statistics and I see the scope of that sort of problem, I feel that way, okay? He says, these missions come nowhere close to solving New York's poverty problem. But Jesus did not command his people to solve the poverty problem. He said to show mercy to the helpless who are in desperate need. And then he quotes Matthew 25. I was hungry and you gave me food. I was thirsty and you gave me drink. I was a stranger and you welcomed me. I was naked and you clothed me. I was sick and you visited me. I was in prison and you came to me. See, what has God put right in front of you? What has God put right in front of you? It might be something on a global scale and it might be something on a local scale, but Jesus is calling you to care for the thing he's putting right in front of you. Not to look by it, not to push it aside, but to care about the thing that's right in front of you. And maybe there is one among our community that someday will solve the problem of homelessness even in just our little town. But until that day, I promise you that Jesus is calling you to be his arms and his hands to someone who is reaching out right now. And every single one of us, every single day, we come into contact with someone who is reaching out and needs help every single day. So what is Jesus putting in front of you? Because that is where you need to be on mission. He didn't call you to fix the whole big scope of the problem. Maybe there's somebody that he's called that to. What he's called you to is to feed those who have no food, is to clothe those who have no clothes, is to visit those who are sick, is to go to those who are in prison. That is what he has called you to. So maybe he's called you to volunteer at the winter shelter. Maybe. Maybe he's calling you to adopt one of the 15,000 children in Pennsylvania's foster care system. Maybe he's calling you to take a hot meal to a neighbor. Maybe he's calling you to shovel the sidewalk for someone who just lost their husband. Maybe he's calling you to show mercy to the person at work that has no one. Maybe you're at school and there's a kid that every single person makes fun of and you can be the difference. Maybe he wants you to say thank you for the first time to the custodian who's cleaning up after you every single day. Yeah, being on mission for Jesus could be as big as solving a major problem. And it can be as big as saying thank you to someone who never hears thank you. Jesus is calling you to the thing that is right in front of you. Pay attention, pray to have eyes to see so that we don't miss what he's doing in front of us. Maybe what he's calling you to this morning is to put aside your image and show his image instead. The other growth area that we want to talk about this morning is tithing. Because like I had said, this is the first time we ever hear of a tithe. The first time that we see someone give a tenth of what they have. And Abram, for, for your, just your history lesson here, Abram comes before Moses. Moses is the one who writes down the law about tithing, 
right? So when you have Moses and forward, there's definitely a legal system. There's a law in place. There's a legalistic idea of tithing. But long before Moses is in the picture, here's Abram giving a tithe to this priest. So this is the first time. It seems spontaneous. It seems to be out of love for God. It seems to be out of his thankfulness of what happened. I mean, Abram went to war and God protected him. God blessed him to defeat his enemies, a coalition of kings with 318 guys. And somehow he wins. And I think part of what we understand is that Abram is simply thankful. He's just thankful that he made it. He's thankful that he was able to rescue Lot, restore his family. He's thankful that he was able to keep his allies alive. He's thankful. There's no legalism here. There's no law that requires it. It's just, it's gratitude of this blessing that's been given to him by a priest who is recognizing God did something amazing through you, something that probably would never happen. This, these kings just came and they just wiped out all these other people on the way to this. And then with 318 guys, you went and rescued everybody. I think what Abram understands too is that God is the only way he won. It's the only way. That victory was God's the whole time. Those possessions and the people, all the stuff that Abram got when he won, that was all God's. He only was able to obtain those things because God blessed him with those things. They're God's. And so maybe you struggle with tithing this morning, the idea of it. You worked hard your whole life. Like, that's, that's your money. Or, or you have saved. You've been so good, so disciplined about saving. That's your money. And I'm not going to tell you that it's not. It is yours. But, you know, when we think about it that way, when we talk about it that way, it's really easy for us to struggle to be generous with it then. Because then we feel like we have to do this. And, and that's, this doesn't represent what Jesus has done. I mean, if you go back to the beginning of Abram's call, he says, Abram, I'm going to make you a nation of blessing. It's really hard to bless others when you are so intent on doing this all the time. That doesn't honor God. Maybe there's a different way we can talk about it that will help us honor God with it better, to be more generous with it. So if you have a retirement, you have a job, income, inheritance, you have time, you have skills, traits, abilities, you're able-bodied, God has blessed you with these things. We have to understand that. God has blessed you with all of those things. You didn't, you aren't able-bodied because of you. Okay? God has blessed you with that. He has made you to be steward of that. If he's given you the gift of singing, playing guitar, praying with those who need it, visiting the sick, of taking care of people who don't leave their houses anymore, he has given you a gift. He's given you a blessing, and he's asked you to steward it. The same is true of our finances. It's no different. God has blessed you with a job. God has blessed you with a paycheck or a retirement or investments or God has blessed you, right? If we're stewards of these things, then we are called to use them well. God doesn't bless us so that we hoard the blessings. 
God doesn't bless us so that we hoard them and then become a dam in the river. God doesn't want us to be a dam in the river. He wants the river to flow. He wants to bless you so that you can bless other people. Abram, I'm calling you to be a nation of blessing, a swarm of blessing. The idea is to just descend upon this world, descend upon this town, descend upon this community, and be a people who will bless one another, who will bless others. And you can't bless others if you're damming up the blessing. If you are sticking yourself there and trying to grab as much as you can for yourself. And so when we look at Abram, Abram is being very generous. And he's not stuck on what's his. I, I told you that those kings came in and took all those people because in the ancient times when you took the people, they're yours to do what you want with. What did Abram do? He tracked them down and took all the people. So by ancient custom, they're all his. He can do whatever he wants. But what does he choose to do? But bless Melchizedek with a tithe to bless God, to give it back, because he recognizes that it's all God's anyway. We give, when that plate passes by, when we talk about tithing, we give because we love. We love what God is doing, we love what he's calling us to, and we're trying to love better. We're called to love, which means that whether it's with our gifts, our time, or our money, one of the things that love doesn't do is keep record. We don't keep record of how we blessed other people. This is what Abram was worried that the king of Sodom was gonna do. I'm gonna give to you, and then down the road, you owe me, because I blessed you, you owe me. We give, we don't do that. We give to bless, not because of legalism, not because of law, because we're thankful. And when we give, when we live generously, we find that our hearts end up being freer. It's much less of a burden we're really just stewards of what God has given us and blessed us with to bless everyone else with. So that's tithing. Let's finish up this morning with gospel. That's been my promise to you during the series is that we're always gonna finish with gospel. We're gonna finish with good news. When we look at these passages of scripture, I believe the gospel is present throughout scripture. I know that we refer to a, a certain number of books as the gospels, the good news, but gospel good news is present throughout all the scriptures. When we look at Genesis 14, what is the good news? And this is where we're gonna get back to our friend Melchizedek, all right? Melchizedek, king of righteousness in the city of peace. He's the priest of the most high God. He brings Abram bread and wine, bread and wine. Bread and wine plays a big role in scriptures later down the road, doesn't it? It sure sounds like Melchizedek, sounds a lot like somebody else we know in scripture later on, doesn't it? In fact, Hebrews chapter seven talks about how it's describing Melchizedek and says, without father or mother, without genealogy, without beginning of days or end of life, resembling the son of God. There's this really interesting connection between Jesus and Melchizedek. And there's a whole lot of theories out there on what that means. And we're not gonna talk about a single one of them this morning. <clears throat> What you might be surprised with is that in the story of Abram, someone who is following the call of God to meet someone else who's also following the call of God, you might be surprised to find out that there's a priest. And you would think a priest probably has a, maybe a, a, a more of a connection. He's a little further on the journey than Abram might be. He's a little further on the road. Um, Melchizedek comes up again in Psalms. 
comes up in Hebrews in an entire chapter. I just read you one part of that chapter, but there's a whole chapter on him. And what I love is that that verse I read to you, it says, without father or mother. Melchizedek, a priest of the Most High God, in a book that is so concerned with genealogy, in a book that is so concerned with who begat who begat who begat who, there is a priest of the Most High God who comes before the priesthood of Aaron who has no father or mother, no genealogy whatsoever. Huh. It's almost like family isn't limited to lineage. In the New Testament, we find God's people are not, not all about a one race, right? It's expanded beyond that. The thing that connects us is grace. Lineage is such a huge part of all of that. But when we get into the New Testament with the coming of Jesus, all of a sudden, the lineages begin to be less important because the door becomes open. Suddenly, so many that have no lineage at all are welcomed into the family of God. First Peter chapter two says, as you come to him, the living stone, rejected by humans but chosen by God and precious to him, you also, like living stones, are being built into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood offering spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. And you might read that and go, so weird to refer to Jesus as a stone. But the Jewish people of the day, their entire understanding of spirituality is centered around a temple made of stones. To say Jesus is a stone is not some callous remark. It's actually very honoring. And Jesus is the stone that's rejected. Yes, he is spit upon. He is rejected by his own people. He is beaten. He is crucified as a criminal. He is the stone that's rejected, and yet he still lives. He dies on a cross, and yet he still lives. He is the living stone. And in fact, Peter goes on to tell us he's the cornerstone. Now, we've talked about cornerstones before here at Kanoi. And I'll just say this then. Cornerstones are massive, massive rocks in biblical times. Massive, so hard to move. And if you found a massive cornerstone type rock, often you would move the building to where the cornerstone is instead of moving the cornerstone to where the building is because they're so big. Everything is built upon the cornerstone. And if Jesus is our cornerstone, then everything is built on him. You build the whole building on Jesus. So Jesus is the cornerstone of this whole thing that priests are all about. He's been rejected, but he's the cornerstone, a living stone, and then Peter goes on to stay, and you also are living stones. There's a promise there, isn't it? You also are living stones being built into a spiritual house to become a holy priesthood. Whoa, big promises, Peter. A living stone like Jesus' living stone? That sounds, something, that sounds like something eternal. That doesn't sound like we're just relegated to this one little life, and we're also going to be built into a house that is a spiritual priesthood? So Melchizedek isn't the only priest outside of the line of David, Moses, and Abram? No. Friends, you are too. You are also priests of the God most high. And I don't say that lightly. It's right here, as plain as day in front of it. That is what you are being built into, a living stone being built into a spiritual priesthood. Amen. You've been made righteous before the king. Amen. Through nothing that you did. And you and I wait 
with excitement. And we work toward, with excitement, the coming of a new Jerusalem, a new city of peace, a place where Jesus dwells with his people forever. Do you know in New Jerusalem, there's no temple? None. Because there's no need for it, because Jesus is with his people forever. And if that's not gospel, I don't know what is gospel. But here's the thing. It gets better, in my opinion. It'd be short-sighted of me to say that you have no lineage. Be short-sighted of me to say that you're just like Melchizedek with no father and no mother because as we talked about it, you're among brothers and sisters. Jesus opened the door for all of us to be children of God and you are among brothers and sisters and we are brothers and sisters in who? In Christ. There is no better way that I could possibly ever explain the name of our denomination We are brethren in Christ, brothers and sisters, children of God, united in Jesus. In Hebrews 7, after it talks about Melchizedek and describes him in length, it goes on to give a description of Jesus. And I just want to read this to you. Such a high priest truly meets our need. One who is holy, blameless, and pure, set apart from sinners, exalted above the heavens. Unlike the other priests, he does not need to offer sacrifices day after day, first for his own sins, then the sins of the people. He sacrificed for their sins once and for all when he offered himself. For the law appoints as high priests men in all their weakness, but the oath which came after the law appointed the son who has been made perfect forever. It is this perfect priest. It is this perfect priest, the son of God, that unites us together as family. We are each priests with a calling to be on mission, the thing that God is putting in front of you today. Melchizedek isn't alone. He's not the only one. We join him as priests of the God most high. When Peter ends his description of talking about the cornerstone, of talking about living stones, about talking about being built into a spiritual priesthood. He then describes what he means. And what I'm gonna ask you this morning is I want you to stand. Would you stand with me? Because I wanna just close with the words of Peter describing what it means to be a part of this community, describing what it means to be made into a priesthood. He says this, but you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness and into his wonderful light. Once you were not a people, once you were alone, but now you are the people of God. You have family, brothers and sisters in Christ, all related to one another. Once you were alone, but now you are the people of God. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. This is what it means for us to fulfill this function of being a priest, is to bestow the love and the grace and the mercy that unites all of us in Jesus Christ to one another. So as priests are called to do, May we give blessings to one another. Would you pray with me? Hi, this is Pastor Nick. Thanks for listening. I hope something that you heard today was very helpful. If you want to connect with us further, feel free to check us out on Facebook, Instagram, or our website. 
pinoychurch.org. Sure, I'm glad we're in this together. Thank you.